Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Friday, March 8th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're peeking behind the curtain to view the darker aspects of being a brand influencer. Being an influencer is all about creating aspirational content and making followers crave those same everyday luxuries that they see on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. It's a delicate ecosystem with a clear hierarchy, And at the top clearly sits the Kardashian-Jenner clan. But beneath celebrity influencers, not everyone trying to make it in this booming industry is actually making good money. So today, I'm talking to Broadly writer Shamira Ibrahim about the darker realities of being an online influencer. Hey, Shamira, how are you? Good. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming. I want to start with the term influencer. So you write about how this term doesn't actually come out of our current sort of digital moment, but it actually stems from the early 90s. And I was wondering if, to begin, you could just kind of lead us through the history of influencing as we know it today and how it's being used now. So like I wrote in my piece, um, the term influencer actually comes from the fuller term, which is uh, trend influencer marketing. Um, And that actually came out of the club scene. Not like anybody in the club actually said that, of course. But there was a man named Michael Blatter who was consulted by actual tobacco companies. At that time, it was Camel uh, Tobacco to actually try to figure out a way to rebrand their image. Because at the time, the tobacco industry had taken a really huge hit. Um, They had had a lot of large lawsuits and large settlements. And so they were trying to find a way to really rebrand their image and really regain revenue. And so Michael Blatter had done this 33-page case study, a 33-page document that actually is really used a lot in MBA case studies today, to this day. And it's kind of a controversial topic that it's still used, but it's really used as a representative of how to really do authentic engagement, authentic marketing. And the term he used was trend influence marketing. And what he used was you have people who've already bought into a certain niche culture, right? They are bartenders. There are people who are enmeshed into pop culture, and they already have these relationships with people who are moving the culture, right? They're with the big pop stars, the big rock stars, the big counterculture people who are dominating the 90s, right? So they're with the people who are, you know, following Nirvana. They're with the people who are staying at CBGB. So these are the people who can really influence the culture because they're the people who are serving the drinks to the people that we're watching on TV, right? So every time that person goes and gets a drink, you can do a little quid pro quo. Hey, do you need a light? Do you need a cig? And you hand them a Camel cigarette. And that is how organically Campbell cigarettes become the cigarette of choice for a lot of people who are smoking. And so that is how kind of one of the first big incidents of influencer culture came to light in the 90s. 
Yeah, that's super interesting. And now when we fast forward almost three decades to brand influencing online, we see this massive industry that's growing on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. And at the very top of this industry, the people making the most money are people like Kylie Jenner and these like mega celebrities and models. And I'm curious just at the tippy top here, like how much are these people making just by posting on Instagram? It's not always consistently clear for a lot of reasons. The same way that we fight for wage transparency in our day-to-day jobs, there's still not wage transparency in influencer marketing. Not everyone shows their rate cards, um, but there are some companies that still disclose a little bit about how much they're willing to pay for certain people um, dependent on their cachet. Um, so it's come to light that certain people like, of, for example, the Kardashian Jenner ilk, it's been rumored or kind of outright disclosed that they tend to charge upwards of six figures a post, low six figures. So that's really high, right, on the IG, on the IG side. But it's a combination of factors, right? The combination of factors will be based on your followers, right? The number of followers you have. Also your engagement, right? Because now it's not just raw numbers. You can have 7 million followers. But what's your engagement? How many people are actually looking at your posts? How many people are actually commenting? How many people are actually leading that to a call to action, right? Because you can actually buy followers, of course, now, right? So that doesn't necessarily mean anything from a raw data. So there are all these social media analytics on the back end now that kind of influencers use to show this is the engagement of my platform. Like there's apps like Social Blade that kind of show, hey, day to day when I post something, this is the engagement that happens when I post something. People really flock to what I'm doing, right? I actually have people that buy into my quote unquote brand. And so that's how they dictate their price and their rates over time. Gotcha. And how does it actually work? Like, what are the deals being struck between brands and influencers? Um, Like, in a sense, what's being exchanged? There are different kinds of deals, right? So they can apply to a variety of things. Uh, They can apply to, hey, there's this specific copy. We want you to post you doing this thing and put this copy and that's it. Just post this post and you have really no negotiating rights as to what you can do. And especially if you're an influencer that is not necessarily just starting out, but you don't necessarily have as much cachet, you're not necessarily a Kardashian or anything like that, then you kind of don't necessarily have much wiggle room around that. Or if the company is maybe not very specific about their image, they may not have much flexibility about what the copy may be, right? So let's say it's Huggies or something like that, right? They have a very specific image about what their brand is. They don't want it to veer away from their brand, so they're not going to let you Um, mix up too much with their copy, right? There are some other influencers, let's take someone like a Cardi B, right? And, you know, her image is very specific to her authentic voice, right? So if she were to negotiate promoting something on her social media, her team is more specifically going to say, it doesn't make sense for me to endorse something and not do it in my voice, right? It doesn't, it's not authentic to what she does. Everyone would notice it immediately that why is Cardi putting out something that is just plain copy. So anything that she would endorse would kind of be negotiated in a different way. Yeah, I want to talk about this term authenticity in right. in the sort of digital like influencer right. space. Like what makes an influencer seem authentic? Right. And that's a hard term to answer, right? Cuz authenticity is something that 
sometimes it's a veneer, I would say, and it really is kind of a matter of perception. And it develops, I think, in one of two ways. I think in the piece I wrote, uh, Alexia Clancy, who I spoke to a lot in the piece, um, and she's an executive director who works a lot in the social media space, kind of mentioned that Instagram is kind of a walking advertisement in a lot of ways. But I think it depends on how you develop your brand over time. A lot of the bigger influencers started off over years of time. So they started off in a niche like three years ago when they had 10 followers. So when they built their space in a niche, then their community felt like they grew with them. So it does feel authentic, even if they've quote unquote sold out and have become a big brand now. So even though they they have these big endorsements in the present day, they did actually build a following over time. Now, when it does seem like they've appeared out of nowhere or it seems like they've kind of exploded in a very short, rapid period of time, that can sometimes feel very inorganic. Um, A lot of times when the perception of authenticity has changed over time are things like standardized copy from brands or companies that promote really heavily to a lot of celebrities simultaneously. For example, I think a popular one on Instagram that we can refer to is like the flat tummy tees. A lot of celebrities promote that one. Um, You can see it very often that, hey, flat tummy tea, it's the same copy to 25 different people, and you can always know when someone is promoting it. And that one is something that, oh, you just needed to check. You're not, that's not authentic or consistent with your brand. Maybe it's something that is expected with your brand because you're a part of a specific niche, but it's not something that is, oh, I believe that this is something that I need and my constituency or my follower base um, really actually genuinely needs. Yeah. And in your piece, you talk about reports that have come out that show that this kind of blind faith in influencer endorsement is actually declining pretty consistently right now. And like in my mind, I'm like, okay, fire festival like that. That's like flashing in my mind. Right. But I mean, what else is going on here? Like, does it have to do with kind of people seeing the same people over and over again and the same copy over and over again? Right. What's going on? So a lot of it is that they're just seeing a lot of the same copying over and over again. And so marketing companies are trying to find different ways to go around that. Right. And that's when we have seen different strategies with like those different tiers of influencers, because for a lot of these corporations, it really is with those different tiers, kind of low investment and possibility of higher reward, right? So when you have things like micro-influencers or nano-influencers, nano-influencers by definition or are people with like 2,500 followers or less. Um, so with those people, they might not necessarily comp them in actual monetary compensation, right? So you're not going to get revenue for every post, but you might get free products, right? And these are people who are hyper-enthusiastic about a brand and they want to start to establish themselves in a space so they might be willing to take free products as they start to establish themselves in a space and that might turn into returns for the actual company because when you have a low follower count and you're actually just trusting yourself based on basic product reviews the actual friend circle around you might find that more authentic than somebody with 20 million followers right so that kind of goes back to the discussion of authenticity right you're kind of taking it back to a more grassroots perspective so that's kind of one of those throwing multiple things out into the kitchen sink, seeing what works. So there are things that companies are trying to do to see whether or not they can circumvent what is kind of corporatized as an industry, which is kind of interesting to see what they are doing as multiple ways of um, subverting the escalating price scales. Um, 
But of course, for some influencers, they feel like that's subverting their bottom line. Yeah. And I want to kind of get to the bottom line of your article. I mean, it's titled The Dark Reality of Being a Brand Influencer. So I want to talk about these sort of nano and micro influencers, you know, not the top celebrities like Kylie Jenner, but people, you know, with fewer followers. What is the return on investment for them? And, you know, what is the darker side that you're talking about in your article? Well, one of the reasons why we mentioned the darker side as a title was that the lead really mentioned at the time that we started workshopping the piece was when there was the mommy blogger who kind of went viral because she did that caption about her son and about how one of her sons essentially doesn't get a lot of engagement. And, you know, she did a birthday post, which to a lot of people was fairly obscene. And, you know, including me, I found it kind of obscene that she could write a whole post on her son's birthday saying, oh, you need to be, you know, know that everyone loves you despite the fact that you don't get as many likes as your other children. And, you know, it went pretty viral. And her reasoning, you know, after, you know, everyone kind of read her for filth um, was, hey, you know, as someone who works in this mommy blogging space, you're kind of consistently hammered in on your worth is tied to the level of engagement that you get. And while it is still kind of asinine to think of things that way, from my perspective, it's not necessarily out of the realm of belief for someone who exists in that space, right? Her day-to-day life is tied to the level of engagement she gets from AdSense dollars to sponsorships to branding. So when somebody's day-to-day worth is consistently associated with that, it's not unfathomable that that is what she may or may not feel. That said, you know, there are people who are trying to do different things. So what we were kind of trying to see as a really consistent narrative is how the reality is maybe different than what is being presented. The numbers are not necessarily consistent. Not everyone is making millions of dollars, right? Some people are just getting free products. Some people are really waiting to come into millions of dollars. The pay scale is not transparent. Firefest is a really great example of the fact that faith and influence does not necessarily result in actual results, right? And as a result, we're now realizing that consumers are becoming savvier and not really trusting influencer culture as much. So that kind of ecosystem may start to fall out at the bottom. And then what comes when it starts to fall out at the bottom? So how are influencers working on that? And some influencers are doing their own work, right? So I you know, spoke to Maddie Jeans and Maddie spoke to how she does her own work for influencers who are coming into that space to make sure they establish themselves in a more substantial way and can establish careers that are more meaningful. Um, so really trying to create a holistic discussion about, yes, the cons, but really how to counteract those and what that really means for how the space is, yes, not necessarily in decline, but has some really big pitfalls that aren't really discussed openly. Yeah. Who is an influencer that you think has a meaningful presence? Like, I'm, I'm interested in that word meaningful that you used and sort of like this industry seems, you know, it's it's very superficial. It's about appearances. It's about, you know, as you said in your article, like kind of creating these fantasies. Like it's aspirational living that people look up to and say like, oh, I, I want my life to be like that. I, I want that product. You know, that product will make me happier or prettier or whatever. So I'm curious, like what are some examples that that feel sort of they go beyond that surface and are actually meaningful engagement? You know, that's a fair question. 
I think it depends on what your definition of influencer is. And why I say that is because for some people, as long as you have X amount of followers and that person is an influencer and they are a thought leader, that insights change, right? Um, so would some people consider Angela Rye, for example, an influencer? I mean, she's a political commentator. She sits on CNN, right? Like, do you consider her an influencer just because she has a lot of followers? Because um, some people would consider her meaningful. But, you know, for people who commonly think of people, for example, in the beauty space, right, I would consider someone like Nima Tang, right, an influencer who I think is probably meaningful for a lot of, you know, black women um, in darker complexion shades, right? And she blew up fairly organically, um, really dedicating her space to making sure that she could find foundations in her shade range. And that has kind of consistently continued for her. And her following, her fan base has gotten really high, I think. At current state, she's at like 800K followers or maybe close to a million. And she's based out of Texas and she still works out of Texas and she still has her following really dedicated to that space. And she still does things like brand trips and the things that a lot of, you know, makeup people in the beauty space do. But the core focus of her work is really trying to ensure that she's reviewing things for black women and women of color and ensuring that the makeup space is centering that work. So... I don't think aspirational influencer work is bad. I want to be clear about that when I you know, talk about that piece. It's more just kind of being transparent about what is happening in this ecosystem and how to accommodate it and where it goes from here. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I want to talk about algorithms now. What role do algorithms play in the success of certain influencers? Yeah, algorithms play an important role, um, especially when it comes to ad compensation. Uh, you know, ad dollars, of course, especially if you go on YouTube, you have your AdSense dollars are important to your compensation. And it's depending on how they feel your hits are, your engagement are, it'll kind of influence your um, revenue per click, right? Because you get um, revenue per 1,000 clicks. And it's in a range. So it's not a fixed you know, amount per click for each person. And so that algorithm will help them calculate how much you get per a thousand clicks. So that's dependent on the algorithm and the the engagement they feel on your AdSense dollars. Um, So those are things that, um, you know, are involved in algorithms and promotion and things like, you know, Google Analytics and Google SEO optimization. And those are things that you have to invest money in. Um, If you don't have the resources to invest money in, then you don't know how to optimize your SEO. So algorithms are very important. There was a section of my piece where I mentioned Destiny Godley, who is another um, black influencer in the makeup space, who felt like for someone who had over 300,000 subscribers, that her videos were being pushed down. And she didn't really understand why her videos were going down to around 3000 views, 2000 views at times when she'd previously averaged 20k or 30k views. And that's a significant drop in revenue, right? For people who are just focusing on YouTube views for income, which isn't necessarily going to get you that much money if you're just relying on YouTube views for revenue, but it's still, you know, a decent chunk of change. That's a significant drop, right? Um, So 
those sorts of transitions can really impact somebody's month-to-month revenue over time, especially if you're looking at, you know, the high revenue earners like the Shane Dawson's or, you know, the PewDiePie's who are, you know, getting millions of views for every post. So those are things that if you optimize it and you push it to, you know, the front of every YouTube page, right? If you go to YouTube.com and just hit the homepage and that's on the top of the page, that's optimizing your SEO right there, right? What's get What gets pushed to the top of the page? Those are largely influencers. So those are the things that really help dictate who is really getting promoted on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, this is super fascinating. Um, I, I want to end this interview by just asking you what your broad takeaways are from writing this piece and, yeah, what you see happening in the future in kind of the influencer economy and what do you want readers and listeners to understand? I think, you know, with this piece, I really got interested in the idea of selling escapism in a sense and, you know, the intersection of both escapism and authenticity and how to actually marry that into a product and how in this universe, it was kind of an inversion of brands selling themselves to the individual into the individual selling themselves to brands and realizing how social media kind of turn into this kind of transactional space. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? We're moving into a digital space. A lot of things are going to become more transactional over time. But as we kind of do that, we should really kind of be a little more conscientious as to what our objectives are with regards to our social space, right? Do we want to use this as exclusively a transactional space or do we want to make sure we try to retain some sort of actual communal interaction? And with that, we should be aware of what trade-offs that comes with. So there has to be a balance you kind of strike and that's a delicate one. There's nothing wrong with escapism. I participate in escapism. I mean, I watch reality TV. That's escapism in and of itself. But there are some cycles that we should probably just try to figure out a different balance on. And so looking at that in its totality is something that sometimes you have to step back and look at the big picture on. And I think this is just meant to start a conversation as to where does influencer culture go from now? And not just in celebrity culture, but really from an individual basis. Yeah, well, that's great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. You can read the full story at broadly.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.